Bibles and turn with me to John 19, John chapter 19. It's hard to know how to describe the desire that we ought have in considering the sobering and sacred and grotesque and awful theme that we're about to read about. It ought humble us and compel us. It ought sober us and overjoy our hearts. It is an astounding thought that our Savior died on the cross for us. In John 19, the text we come to this morning follows after the sure assurance that he is dead. Remember, the Roman soldiers were dispatched by Pilate to go hurry up the deaths of those who were being crucified at the beckoning of the Jews. They broke the legs of the first two on either side of Jesus and sped up that death by suffocation. And then they came to Jesus and realized that he was already dead, which was unheard of for a Roman crucifixion to last only six hours. But to be sure, they thrust their Roman spear into his side, piercing all the way to his heart, and out came flowing blood and water. Sure proof that Jesus was dead. But just so there is no confusion, all four Gospels tell you what happened next. All four Gospel records want you to know that this dead body had to be cared for. We want to jump to the resurrection, rightly so, but we must first walk through the darkness of the tomb. John 19, verse 38 says this, And the, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission so that he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Before becoming a pastor, I had very little experience with the dead and with what we as a society do with those who have died. After becoming a pastor, that's a pretty regular experience, as you can imagine, is to be present with the family after their loved one passes away. Of the many things that I could tell you about those sacred and frankly, holy moments as you, as a family, grieve that loss. The one thing that is pertinent to this text is how intentional we are as a culture to care for those dead bodies. We have customs, and they've gone beyond customs to protocol. There, there's actually laws in place for how we have to handle someone who has passed away. And, and those laws pertain to different situations. If it's in the hospital, it's, it's one set of, of protocol. If it's at home, it's a, another set of protocol. If it's in a, 
a different location than an unexpected death and a car accident or somewhere else. It's a different set of, of protocols, all guaranteeing that we as a society care well for the body of the deceased. Death is by no means a pretty reality. It's filled with ugliness and indignity. But by our caring for the dead, we diligently show our love and our respect for the one who has died. That's what's happening in this text with the body of our Lord. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus take the initiative to to go about their customary process as Jews and to, to care for this deceased body. There's a lot of things in the scene that we wish we knew, at least I wish I knew as I studied it this week. Things like, how did they get the body off the cross? Or what, what did that look like? Did they have help? When, and, and what was the, the care that they gave to the marred condition of Jesus' body? I, certainly this was a unique situation, different than from, say, Lazarus in John 11 when he died of illness. So this is a, a difficult, sacred scene. But what we're told in the text is obviously of utmost Significant, So significant, as I mentioned, that all four gospel writers want you to know the, the name and essentially the address of the man who took care of Jesus. They want you to have, as it were, his phone number and his email address. That you know that this really, truly happened. When you put the records together, you can kind of get a, a picture of this man, Joseph of Arimathea, and a little bit of Nicodemus. Joseph was obviously an influential man. He was known by this name, Joseph of Arimathea. Obviously, there were a lot of Josephs in Jesus' day. You you know another one immediately, that being his own human father. His stepfather was named Joseph. Like Mary, it was a popular name for men. And so this is Joseph of Arimathea. This is how he was known. Arimathea is likely designating the town of Ramah, which you know from the prophet Samuel. It's about two hours' walk north of Jerusalem. It's about the same distance north of Jerusalem that Bethlehem is south of Jerusalem. And this is likely the town that Joseph is from, though he probably has now moved to Jerusalem, or at least has a lot of business dealings in Jerusalem and is there a lot. All four Gospels tell us about Joseph, and all four Gospels tell us one thing that the others don't. So Matthew tells us that he was a wealthy individual, that he owned the tomb where Jesus was to be laid. We found out from Mark that he was a a prominent member of the council of the Sanhedrin, not just a member, but a prominent member. He was well known by all as being one of the council of the Sanhedrin. Yet that Sanhedrin, the the one who had just met on Friday morning and pronounced that, that Jesus had to die, that council. But don't worry, Luke tells us that Joseph of Arimathea did not consent nor agree to their decision nor their actions. He opposed their desire to kill Jesus. Luke also tells us that he was a good and a righteous man, meaning he was a man of integrity and a man of truth. He he was a, a genuine seeker of the truth. He wanted to do what was right. He wanted to honor the Lord with his life. Mark and Luke combined to tell us that he was looking for the kingdom of God. Not only was he good and righteous, but he was longing for the Messiah to come. And he was looking for the Messiah and hoping that maybe this Jesus of Nazareth was 
that Messiah. In fact, Matthew and John tell us that he was a disciple of Jesus. John tells us he was a, a secret disciple, a crypto disciple is the actual word. He was undercover as a follower of Jesus. Apparently along the way, as Joseph saw Jesus and heard of Jesus, and as he saw the Sanhedrin rise in their hatred against Jesus, he started wondering and even believing that Jesus actually was the promised one, that he was who he said he was. So here we have this highly influential member of the highest governing body of the Jewish people in Jerusalem. We have a man of immense wealth, a man of deep faith, one who's looking for the coming kingdom of God, being slowly convinced that this Jesus is his Messiah, but out of fear of losing everything, and I mean everything, he stays undercover. He believes, but does not yet profess. And he now, in this moment, steps boldly forward and by his action owns his faith in this Jesus and goes to Pilate and says, can I have possession of the body for burial? You have to ask when you read this text, why this man? Where is everyone else? Why Joseph of Arimathea? Why did he step forward and care for the body? Next to him, John tells us there's another man by the name of Nicodemus. You know about Nicodemus already from John 3 and John 7. In fact, John's gospel is the only one who tells us anything about Nicodemus. In John 3, we learn that he was the great teacher of Israel. So if you had a question about the law and how you should live in light of the law, you went and found Nicodemus. But in John 3, he's presented as the man with the question that can't be answered by anyone else. So he comes to Jesus and he says, listen, Tell me about the kingdom. Are you bringing the kingdom? It was at night. It was behind closed doors. It was a crypto meeting of one who would soon become a crypto disciple, a secret follower. You remember what Jesus told Nicodemus? Remember how he framed the conversation? Listen, it doesn't, your, your question is not the one that needs answered. What needs answered is how do you get into the kingdom? And you can only get into the kingdom if you are born again, born from above. So Nicodemus, you must be born from above. Remember that? Well, then in chapter 7, there's this big controversy about Jesus and the Sanhedrin are looking for ways to kill him, to put him to death. They're mad about him doing his uh, miracles on the Sabbath day and all this kinds of stuff. And they are determined to arrest Jesus. And so Nicodemus stands up for Jesus in the sense of wanting due process. He says, we don't condemn a man until we've heard what he said and has heard the charges and have actually tried him. You remember the response at the end of chapter 7? This is the Sanhedrin now. The, the people who are Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea's peers. They shot Nicodemus down by saying, what, are you from Nazareth too? Don't you know nothing good comes from Galilee? Are you kidding me, Nicodemus? Sit down and be quiet. I think we ought to give a little grace here, right, to the process of discipleship for Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, prominent members of the council, both very wealthy, both highly influential. And now at this moment, the death of Jesus, they step forward and ask for the body of our Lord. Can you imagine the tension here? Can, can you read this text imaginatively for a minute? 
put yourself on the scene here? Just a few minutes prior, others from the Sanhedrin had marched into the quarters of Pilate and had asked him, listen, we don't want these guys hanging on that tree on our Sabbath day and defiling our holy day. And by the way, Pilate, it's a high holy day because it's the, the beginning of Passover, so we need to get this guy off. So can you break their legs, speed it up, and we can get on with our lives? We don't want to defile ourselves. Can you imagine that maybe as they're leaving and, and as the soldiers go and are dispatched to do their thing, that, that somewhere along the way, maybe Joseph of Arimathea passes that cohort from the Sanhedrin, and they kind of look at him oddly. What are you doing? Where are you going? They know he doesn't consent. They didn't agree with what's going on, and they're wondering why he's going to see Pilate. And he marches boldly, Mark says, into Pilate and says, can I have permission to care for the body of Jesus? Now you have to know this is not usually how this goes for those who are crucified. For those who are crucified for a criminal act, usually their, their family would be entrusted with the body if they wanted it. And they would, when, when the criminal was obviously dead, then they would have the body given possession to them and they would bury it. For criminals who, who didn't have that, then the Jews themselves provided a, a common burial ground for all those kinds of criminals. But if you were condemned to die because of insurrection, going against Rome, raising a foe kingdom, a, a rival kingdom to Caesar, you hung on that cross until the vultures picked apart your dead body. You know why? Because they want everyone to know if you do this to Rome, this is how you'll end up. So you don't want to die and have your body picked apart by vultures? Then don't defy Rome. And so here we have Joseph of Arimathea asking a very bold question to go against protocol to release to him the body of one who is despised and rejected of men. By Pilate turning over the body to Joseph of Arimathea, most certainly this is his final act in saying, I do not agree with the Sanhedrin. I do not believe this man was an insurrectionist. Therefore, I'm going to give him a proper burial of dignity by this man, Joseph of Arimathea. As we understand the lay of the text a bit better, you see the scene, you understand the tension, you think about what's going on here and the horror of the reality of this dead body being cared for by Joseph and Nicodemus. I ask you, what lessons are there here for us in this text? What truths ought bubble to the top as we consider what Joseph and Nicodemus do with our Lord? There's a lesson here about discipleship. There's a lesson here about God. And there's a lesson here about death. The first is a lesson about discipleship. That discipleship is itself costly. It is costly. There's two men in this text who step forward as disciples of Jesus, as followers of Jesus. And as I've mentioned, they were on a journey to this kind of discipleship. This took them a while. They didn't hear Jesus teach once and say, you know what, I'm a follower no matter the cost, and, and they followed him and abandoned all. No, it took time, as often it does in our human hearts, doesn't it? It took time for them to realize who Jesus was and, and that he was worth following in this way. They were able to follow him in a, a secret sense for a while and truly believe in him, yet maintain other parts of their life. But there came a moment, and, and this is the axiom. This is the truth you must not miss. 
There came a moment in their discipleship where being a secret disciple could no longer jive with being an actual disciple. At some point, they had to come out and say, I'm with Jesus. Now for them, it was at His cross. They had to own our Lord here at His death. And by their actions, that which was hidden in their lives now comes out fully into the open. As they courageously step from the shadows into center stage, they directly go against the Sanhedrin. They lose everything in their lives. They're outing themselves as true followers of this despised prophet from Galilee. From this point forward, in Joseph and Nicodemus' life, everything changes. And this is true for following Jesus. To believe in Jesus, to be saved by Jesus, to have your sins forgiven, sets you on a course that our Lord calls a narrow and hard and difficult way. He also assures you that you're yoked to Him and His yoke is easy and His burden is light. But He doesn't lie to you. He says it's going to cost you everything. He tells you to take up your cross daily and follow after Him because it's going to ruin your life in the sense of the world's perspective. This is exactly what we see with Joseph and Nicodemus. And this is what is true for all true disciples of Jesus. John tells us in verse 38 that Joseph was a secret disciple. This is not a nice way of talking about somebody in John's gospel. Back in chapter 12, he told us that even though Jesus had performed all these amazing signs and wonders, though he had had the triumphal entry and all Jerusalem had been confronted with his kingship, though he had occupied the temple and cast out all the money changers, and though he had stood in the temple and authoritatively taught and rebuffed every challenge that came against him, Still, on Tuesday night, John says at the end of chapter 12, many still did not believe in him. Then he follows that up and he says, but many of the leading religious leaders believed in him, but for fear of the Jews, they kept it secret. That's not a nice way to talk about someone who's following Jesus. That they haven't yet come full circle to be actual, true disciples. What he says of Joseph of Arimathea is that he was one of those, but he now is out in the public. He is clearly, truly professing Jesus as Savior and Lord. John tells us of that positive change, and I think we can infer rightly, it's not just Joseph of Arimathea, but Nicodemus as well, that those, the secret became known. They publicly own Jesus as Messiah, Savior, and Lord. And there's unavoidable cost for them here, and I want you to know there's unavoidable cost for following Jesus. And we don't know how to talk about that well in American Christianity because it doesn't necessarily immediately cost you a bunch to follow Jesus, at least not yet. It is becoming all the more costly for you to own publicly Jesus as Savior and Lord. And one of the great lies of our culture is to privatize your faith, to, to individualize this experience, to to tell you, listen, you can believe whatever you want to believe, just keep it to yourself. And don't worry about or mess with anyone else. But that's not true discipleship. True discipleship is public and clear and professing Jesus as Savior 
and Lord. It's a costly decision. Think for a minute about the timing of this decision for Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus to go public. The crowds had mobbed Jesus when he could do something for them, right? When he could turn bread and fish and multiply it into enough for everybody. When he could turn water into wine and save a wedding feast. When he could touch a a leper and heal them of all of their disease. When he could speak to a blind man and he could see. Well, then the crowds mobbed him, right? The disciples, the public disciples came after him. Where are they now in John 19? Nowhere to be seen. They're all in hiding. They're secret disciples. They've gone from public to secret. It's backwards. But here in this moment when Jesus can do nothing for Joseph and nothing for Nicodemus in the physical realm. He's dead. Here, these men are compelled to step forward and own Jesus as Savior and Lord. That He is their Lord and their God. See also how this stepping across the threshold by Joseph of Arimathea, I think, spurs along Nicodemus. Joseph is listed in all four Gospels as the one who does this. John tells us that Joseph doing this spurs Nicodemus along. This is so often the case, isn't it? As you follow our Lord Jesus or as you see someone else do that, you're compelled also to do that. There's a peer pressure effect in the positive sense. And Nicodemus brings with him, as a rich man of high influence, 75 pounds of ointments to adorn the body of Jesus. It's an extravagant display of of worship of our Lord. It was normal custom, as we find out in John 11 when they dealt with Lazarus' body. It was normal custom to take linen cloths and wrap them around the dead body and and in those linen cloths to to line it with an ointment of myrrh and aloes and, and other scents. And the idea was to in some way impede the decay of the body, but that really couldn't happen much. More than that, it was to impede the smell of the decay of the body, which helped a little bit. And so that's what they were doing. But this 75 pounds is a bit excessive in in a good sense. It's that which you would bring for royalty. There's evidence in New Testament era literature outside of the Bible of, of people bringing this much to honor a king, a dignitary. Someone of of high renown. That's what Nicodemus is doing here. As a man of extreme means, very wealthy, he, he brings his best to honor the body of one he is declaring to be his king. That sign that was above his cross, Nicodemus is agreeing. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, worthy of excessive ointment upon his dead body. So do you see the progression of faith here for Joseph and Nicodemus? Secret disciples progressing in their understanding, seeing the heat turned up on Jesus, seeing how he responds, seeing the wickedness of evil hearts of their own Sanhedrin, rejecting that, turning from that, stepping away from that, opposing that, still in secret, believing that Jesus is their Messiah. And then in this pivotal moment, they're compelled to cross the threshold and to ask, can we have the body? Can we bury our Lord? 
And then when they do, they carefully care for our Lord's body and they put Him in a a glorious tomb in the sense of of tombs of that day. a, A rich man's tomb. Anointed and lined with excessive rich man-like treatment. You see how their unhindered worship followed them stepping across the threshold from private to public? How when they owned it and they counted the cost and they realized they would lose everything, that freed them to worship our Lord completely and totally? To pour out their best for our Lord? because they were publicly now following our Lord. This wouldn't have happened two weeks ago. They wouldn't have worshipped Him in this way because they weren't public yet. Now they're public and they're compelled to this kind of sacrificial and abundant worship. So friend, this is true for you. You can be a, a secret disciple. One who believes in Jesus in your heart. One who checks all the boxes of what a disciple looks like in your own personal life. But one who continues to maintain that privacy of faith, unwilling to go public to step across the threshold and and own Jesus as Lord and as your God. In our day and age, the most obvious threshold of that public profession is baptism. That it is the point, the New Testament ordained point at which we say, I'm my Lord's and He is mine. I'm with Him. He's my only hope. But then that threshold gets presented in all kinds of ways in our lives, doesn't it? In our families, when we are around the holiday table and conversation comes up about spiritual things, who are we going to own in that moment? Who are we going to stand with as they start spewing opinions contrary to the truth of God? Are we going to humbly, mercifully, patiently, graciously, yet boldly say, you know, I am convinced that the Word of God is true and that those opinions of man will fall flat in the coming day? Or at our workplace, when our coworkers are pressing us to, to join them in some form of of debauchery or mocking of some debauchery in our culture. There's another opportunity of the threshold to go public, isn't it? I say, no, no, I don't do that because I am owned by another. My life is not my own. It's been bought with the high price of the blood of my Savior. That's costly. You might lose your job. You might lose your friends in the workplace. You might become the pariah in your office. Nobody talked to him. He's, he's the holy Christian. He just judges you all the time. You said nothing of judgment. But you get pegged that way because you've identified with Jesus. It's costly to follow our Lord. And I want to ask you, what is it that made the difference for Joseph of Arimathea? Why? Why do this? And, and beloved, when you read your Bibles, you need to ask good questions like that and refuse to let the text go until you have a good answer. And one of the questions you must ask as you read John 19, 38 to 42 is, why did he do this? What compelled him now? Why did he step forward? Well, obviously, the grace of God at work in his life. We know that from other texts like Ephesians 2. He was dead in his trespasses and sins, uncaring about this, but 
God made him alive together with Christ. But beyond that, what, what else made the difference? Well, isn't it, isn't it the cross of Christ itself? Isn't it that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus saw this Jesus suffer and die as a righteous man, as the Son of God? Aren't they here confessing like the centurion? Surely this man was the Son of God. It's the cross that made them cross the threshold. This is this exactly how Paul talks about his coming to the Lord Jesus. Galatians 6, verse 14. Paul is in Galatians, you know, he's countering all those people who, who want to make their religion and their righteous deeds of utmost value in their relationship with God. In Galatia, it was circumcision. If you're circumcised and you check all the boxes, then you're good with God. At the end of the letter, when Paul just obliterates that viewpoint and shows them it's all of grace, it says in verse 14, But far be it from me to boast except in what's next? The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. You see, Paul at the cross realized that he's dead to the world. It, it doesn't matter what people think of him. It doesn't matter how people label him or assess him or give him value or take away value from him. What matters is that he is in Christ. That he is crucified with Christ and buried with Christ and raised with Christ and will ascend with Christ and will reign forever with Christ. That's what matters to Paul. He says it again in Philippians 3 after he gives the long list of all the things that were human accomplishments and, and should make him commendable to the religious world. And you have your list, don't you? If you thought long enough, you could come up with one. Born of this family, doing these things, part of this church, accomplishing these righteous deeds, good reputation in the workplace, caring for the poor, whatever it is you have on your list. Paul takes that list and he says in verse 7 of chapter 3, but whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Beloved, the, the Christian truth here is that the way to the resurrection is through the cross. And it's not just our Lord who goes from the cross to the grave to new life. It's you who must go with Him to the cross, to the grave, and to the newness of life. You must see Jesus as more worthy. You must be willing to lose everything. For He is surpassingly more valuable than all that you have. All that you could own. Christ. Is more. Isn't that what Joseph is saying here? 
Isn't he stepping across that threshold and saying, you know what? I'm going to lose it all, but Christ is better. My life as I know it is over, but my life in Christ is just beginning. This is the axiom, the truism of faith and discipleship. There's also truth here about God, that God is to be trusted. So discipleship is costly, and also God is to be trusted. It's a lesson about God's trustworthiness displayed here in this scene. This is why John tells us about the dead body of Jesus and how it was handled after the cross. He's proving to you that God is sovereignly powerful over this most hopeless moment in human history. Has there been a a darker moment in all of human history than this one? And even here, and maybe I should better say, especially here, our sovereign Lord is carefully superintending every last detail. And I mean every last detail. So see His sovereign control over the scene. If you think of it from a human perspective, How likely is it, just by the nature of of chance, as if that were a real thing, but by the nature of chance, how likely is it that one of the most influential men in Jerusalem would own the garden plot right next to where Jesus would be crucified? How likely is it that he would have just finished carving out of the limestone a new grave, which would be near the place of execution? How likely is it, according to human reasoning and human chance, how likely is it that the grave would be empty? Because, you know, just like in their day, so in our day, people die every day. How likely is it that this grave would be empty? Not just empty, but never having been used. Not just empty, but fresh, new, never used before. How likely is it that this execution would take place on a Friday afternoon before a high Holy Sabbath day that would compel the Jews to say, get those men off those crosses? And so they would be compelled to rush and get Jesus off the cross and and they would pick this site, this tomb, because it's right there, it's near, and they can get him in the grave before sundown. And so that Jesus is guaranteed to be in the grave just like he said he would be three days and three nights, like Jonah was in the belly of a fish. How likely is it that that would happen according to our own reasoning? Certainly you see the sovereign power of God in every detail to bring this about as he orchestrates every moving part of humanity to accomplish his purpose in this most important moment. You must know, so too is he at work in your life in every detail to accomplish his purposes, to glorify his name and to bring good to you now and especially into eternity. Psalm 22, verse 15 says that the Messiah would be laid in the dust of death. So here Jesus is laid in the dust of death in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Isaiah 53, verse 9 says that the Messiah will make his grave with the wicked, so he'll die with the wicked. But in his death, he will be associated with a rich man. In other words, Jesus, the Messiah, prophesied by Isaiah 53, fulfilled in John 19, would not be taken off the cross and and thrown into the the place of corruption and shale like all the other wicked criminals were who were crucified. Rather, His body would be set apart, placed in its own tomb, a borrowed tomb, the tomb of a rich man, 
So if this smallest of details prophesied 700 years before fulfilled in perfection in John 19, if God's at work to do that, beloved, can you trust Him with your low bank account? Can you trust Him with your disease? Can you trust Him with that relational difficulty? Can you trust Him with your future? Can you trust Him with that decision you just made that you thought was right and it's blowing up in your face? Can you trust Him with your marriage? Can you trust Him with having kids and raising kids? Can you trust Him with your adult children? Releasing them to Him and pleading with Him for their souls? And whatever else is heavy on your hearts, can you trust Him? And I say to you from this text, He has proven Himself trustworthy. Not only by His sovereign power, but also by the sure proof of Jesus' death. God's telling you something by letting you know that Jesus is truly dead. He wants you to know that, that this one who came and was born and lived is also the one who died, whose body needed taken care of off of the cross, needed buried in a borrowed tomb. This is why He tells you about Joseph of Arimathea requesting the body and burying him in his own tomb. You know there's nothing known about Joseph of Arimathea outside of this event? Nothing before, nothing after. We never see his name again in Scripture. He doesn't come up even in extra-biblical sources. We have no idea much more about him than what we see here. The point is, God was at work to prove to you that Jesus died. What all four Gospels are essentially saying in the first century hearer or reader of the gospel is if you don't believe Jesus died and was buried and rose again, go to Joseph, the one from Arimathea, and find him and ask him. Here's his number. Text him. See if it's true. And if you don't get a hold of him, here's Nicodemus. He'll verify it as well. All four of them want you to know Jesus truly died, along with that hands-on testimony from Joseph, and I mean hands-on. Think of the stories Joseph could tell of caring for the body of Jesus. Think of what the Apostle John says when 1 John 1. He says, we, our hands have handled, our eyes have seen, our ears have heard, and our hands have touched. And we tell you this is true. Jesus is Lord. Consider along with that some curious coincidences. That's a term from J.C. Ryle assessing the scene. Just, just think of these curious coincidences, which I think are further validation from our Lord that, listen, Jesus truly lived, truly died, and was truly buried in Joseph's tomb. Consider the first human hands to handle the human body of Jesus at his birth were another Joseph. His stepfather, his human father, received our Lord's body and cared for him in those initial moments of life. And now here at the end of his life, the last human hands to touch our Lord's body is another Joseph. Affirming to you that just like he was born in Bethlehem and handled by Joseph, his father, so too did he die at Calvary and he is handled by Joseph of Arimathea. Along with that, consider that when Jesus was an infant, he was showered with lavish gifts from very rich, wise men. They brought from a far country gifts fit for a king, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And here at the end of his life, Jesus is again received like a king by very wise, very rich men who 
handle his body with care and love and lavish on him the gifts due a king. This is your God saying to you, listen, Jesus died and was buried and will rise again. All of this teaches that our God is to be trusted. The last lesson from our text is that death is not to be feared. Death is not to be feared. I know you want me to jump to the resurrection. That's next week. This truth is found in the tomb. That death is not to be feared. There are lessons from the tomb with all the information John gives us about the tomb in two verses. Verse 41 and 42. He lets us know that this is not a tomb which we need to fear. This is a tomb made for this moment. Made for our conquering King, our Redeemer, and our Lord. So what does John tell us about this tomb? Well, it tells us that it was in a garden. It tells us that it was a new tomb. It tells us that it was an empty tomb. That it was a borrowed tomb. And that it was a tomb near to the place of crucifixion. Each one of those details reinforces the lesson of this text that death is not to be feared by those who are in Christ. So consider that because it was a garden tomb, it was fit for a Redeemer. It was a garden tomb, therefore it was fit for a Redeemer. You know, this whole mess started in a garden. The first Adam in a garden took of the fruit out of rebellion against God and, and ate. And the curse for his rebellion was death upon him and all who come after. And so the human race dies under the curse of sin because of what happened in a first in the first garden. Here in the garden near to our Lord's crucifixion, that price for our redemption is fully paid. He heads to this garden at the end of it all to buy us back from sin's curse, to set us free from death. And in this garden, there was a tomb in which Jesus' body was laid to let you know it is finished. The price has been paid. The blood has been poured out. God is satisfied. You can live because you can be redeemed by this one who was laid in a garden tomb. It also was a new tomb fit for a king. This is what was behind the prophecy in Isaiah 53, that he would be with a rich man in his death. He was not thrown into the criminal's mass grave like the man on his right and the man on his left. He died between them, but he was not buried with them. He was separated from them and given royal treatment in a new tomb as a king because he is. Also an empty tomb fit for a conqueror. It's an empty tomb fit for a conqueror. This tomb did not hold any death or corruption it was not already polluted with death. Probably one of the only grave sites, one of the only tombs in the land of Israel on that day to have freedom from corruption. No dead man or woman's body had ever laid in that place. It was an empty tomb. This is yet another facet of the fulfillment of Psalm 16 and verse 10, isn't it? The apostles use that, that verse and the book of Acts, to speak of the resurrection of Jesus, where David prophesies and says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now use that verse to prove that Jesus didn't see corruption because he was raised from the grave. 
But can we also apply to this scene? He, he wasn't put into a grave already corrupted. He wasn't put into to Sheol, the place of the dead or where dead bodies go. He was kept from it because it was an empty tomb. And being laid into this empty tomb, you know in a matter of hours it will be empty again. Empty once and then empty forever. History and archaeology and biblical witness join to tell us about this, this tomb of Jesus. I'll probably say more about this next week, but it's a fascinating, fascinating study. The tomb of Jesus was, was well known, as I'll explain in a moment. It was very public, very obvious. People knew where it was. And so you can imagine the Christians, after the resurrection of Jesus, would gather here to worship. It became, obviously, a holy site for the Christian church. As the emperor Hadrian in the 120s, 130s, somewhere in there, started to persecute Christians and take over Israel, he came to Jerusalem and he wanted to obliterate the Christian religion and the Jewish religion. And so he wanted to build a town on top of what they held as holy. And what's the most holy place in all of Jerusalem for the Christians? It is the empty tomb of our Lord. And so there is archaeological and historical evidence that he built a temple to Venus and to Jupiter on top of the tomb of our Lord, thereby completely desecrating it, burying it in, unable even to be found to this day. But the site we still know, the footings and the rock and the stone are still seen of Hadrian's temple. This is the site today of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And it declares to the world this Grave never held death. Jesus went into an empty tomb, left it an empty tomb, and it is forever empty. He is the conqueror of death. It also was a borrowed tomb fit for a servant. Jesus came in the humility of servanthood, born of a virgin, placed into an animal's feeding trough, exiled to Egypt, raised in Nazareth, servant to all in all of his life, crucified among criminals, buried in a borrowed tomb. He who is slave to all is here given a fitting burial in a borrowed tomb. It's also a near tomb fit for a resurrection. It was a near tomb. It was close at hand, fit for a resurrection. Jesus was crucified, as John told us, in a very public place. Everyone who passed by could see him there. And now John wants you to know that they also could see where he was buried. It was right next to it. If you could see Calvary, you could see the tomb. You could know that that's where they placed the body of Jesus. The timing of Jesus' death, orchestrated by our sovereign Lord, necessitates them pressing and pushing in a matter of minutes to wrap the body of Jesus with 75 pounds of ointment and these linen cloths to move it carefully into this tomb. And they had no time to move it anywhere else. This was their only option. And so they put it into this near tomb. And, and this sets up perfectly for the resurrection, doesn't it? If anything needs to be undeniable, historically known, publicly certifiable, is it not the resurrection of our Lord? And here it is in God's sovereignty, a, a tomb right next to His crucified hill. He is buried. All of this proves to us that death is not 
to be feared if we die in Christ. His tomb becomes your tomb in death if you are united to Him. Death becomes our victory because Christ Himself has overcome. He entered the garden tomb as our Redeemer. He entered the new tomb as our King. He entered the empty tomb and left it empty once again because He's our glorious conqueror. He entered a borrowed tomb as our servant, suffering in our place. And He entered a near tomb because He was going to rise from the dead for all to see. Brother or sister, you need not fear death. It is your gain. As one writer said, if your head is in heaven, speaking of Christ, you need not fear your feet in the grave. He has conquered fully and truly. So I ask you, hearer of the word, where is God bringing His truth upon your soul today? Where is He doing business with you? By His Spirit, where is He encouraging you, exhorting you, comforting you, or challenging you? Is He calling you to the effusion of worship that should come out of true discipleship? Costly discipleship. Is He comforting you that He is faithful and must be and can be trusted? Is He comforting you with the fact that death has a sting, but it does not have a victory? That the tomb is actually your passageway to victory in Christ? May God in His mercy do business with each of our souls for His glory. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, You are worthy of all of our praise and all of our worship. We ask that You would apply your word to us for your glory, making us more like your son. We pray for those among us who may not yet know Christ, who have believed in Jesus to some extent in secret, but have not yet professed him clearly and truly. Father, would today be the day of their bold, courageous, true faith in Jesus. May you be glorified through it in Jesus' name. Amen.